Good afternoon. Um, it's, um, thank you for coming. Um, I'm very happy to speak about um, a topic that is, um, it is at the heart of my forthcoming book, um, which deals with the question of um, education and different forms of learning um, among the current. Um, uh, book is still in print, it's now in production process, um, but it's basically a book that looks at um, different forms of learning among the Karen. Perhaps for those who don't know the Karen, the Karen are an ethnic minority group um, living in Burma and in Thailand, especially at the border area of Thailand and Burma. And um, they have they have a whole tradition of learning, but um, modern education, as I will come, I will speak about in this presentation, only came in the 17th century um, to the Karen, um, but they have a whole tradition of practical learning. So in the book I'm looking at education and intergenerational relationships. Um, Do Aung San Suu Kyi um, mentioned in 2013 in a video of her own school reunion, I don't know how many of you know that um, Do Aung San Suu Kyi was a student of the Methodist English High School in Rangoon and the students had in 2013 a student reunion and a friend of mine who also was a pupil at that school um, gave me a video of this reunion, so quite a rare document and um, there Do Aung San Suu Kyi spoke about the value of education, especially um, in terms of interrelations between generations, she says Education is about to enable us to meet any challenge that life might throw at us, not just for ourselves, but for those with whom we live. And those with whom we live are not just those in a family or town or country, but in this world today. So emphasizing um, the power and ability of um, education to create positive relationships um, across countries, from the smallest local levels of society up to the um, widest levels. Um, and another a friend whom I, a current friend, um, Baba Ban, the daughter of, um, but she's the sister of Soya Ban, who is perhaps more famous because Soya Ban wrote a biography about the life of her family, but her older sister, um, Baba, um, is a good friend of mine and gave me an interview and also spoke and reflected about education. Actually, Barbara herself studied education in this country. She, she came as well as a, she came from a Thai refugee camp to the UK and studied here. And um, she speaks about how her, in her own family, um, a Karen family in Burma, um, they were very poor. She grew up in the jungle. But education had a very high value. Um, her father was the general secretary <coughs> of the Korean National Union, who got assassinated. But the parents, poor, living in the jungle, valued education and urged the daughters to study. And Barbara herself says, I believe in education, so to give some education is a gift, priceless. And this idea of the gift, education being a gift, um, it's not a... She mentions it, but for the Karen in general, there is a whole tradition of thinking in Karen mythology, education or learning is always thought of as a gift. I come back to it later. First, I want to look at um, the gift actually in anthropological theory. Um, because in anthropology, those of us who studied anthropology might know that um, anthropologists um, see the, a gift not purely as something gratuitous, but usually a gift is always related to some kind of economic or even political exchange. Um, Bonislav Malinowski, in his famous um, 
ethnography of the Argonauts of the Western Pacific describes how the Trobriand Islanders are exchanging gifts like shells or um, exchanging gifts, but not only to, um, to give each other pleasure, but um, they expect something in return. And Marcel Mauss um, developed a whole theory of the gift in his book, The Gift. He describes how there are three obligations always involved, to give, to receive, and to reciprocate. And he says, but this is not, not like an e economical exchange. He says it is all a matter of etiquette. It is not like in the market where objectively and for a price one takes something. Nothing is unimportant. Contracts, alliances, the passing of goods, the bonds created by these goods, passing between those giving and receiving, this form of economic morality takes account of all this. The nature and intention of the contracting parties, the nature of the thing given, are all indivisible. Um, so through giving a gift, receiving a gift, and hopefully reciprocating a gift, relationships are created between family members, community members, but also, as I show, um, between states. Um, here's an example of the gift exchange at the court of Ava. Um, as Myanmar was previously called. The British ambassador, um, Simus, um, writes in his account of, the, of an embassy to the kingdom of Ava, published in 1800, but um, his journey took place in 1795. He describes in detail the procedure of gift exchange that he, as ambassador, he brought gifts to the king. He says the custom which imposes an obligation on a foreign minister to pay a mark of respect by a trifling present to the royal family to whom he is introduced has already been noticed. This compliment I offered in person to the several princes on the days of my presentation. And he had a Persian secretary um, who waited on each of the ministers and the principal officers of the court and requested in the name of the British ambassador to the, the acceptance of these gifts. And these were usually small gifts from Europe or from India. A few yards of European broadcloth, an article of cut glass, a piece of be Bengal muslin, or of silk. And that was received in a very polite and handsome way to show a friendly disposition. So receiving the <coughs> gift that is offered shows that some friendliness and an openness to the British ambassador from the side of the Burmese court. And then in return, um, of course, from the Burmese side, the British ambassador received gifts in return, and that was also a political statement. And he says, the form of receiving the presents which were brought to me as a return of those that had been given occupied a considerable portion of the last days of his stay. Retributory donations were now brought in troublesome abundance from every individual to whom the smallest gratification had been given. And in some instances, the return far exceeded in value what had been received. My house was encumbered with all sorts of Birman utensils in painted and Japaned ware. I was also presented with pieces of silk and cotton cloth, elephant teeth, amber wrought in beads, 50 or 60 pieces of plate formed into beetle boxes, mugs, spitting pots and cups, precious stones too constituted a very general gift, chiefly rubies and sapphires in their native state, rudely set in gold. So I think this shows very neatly how um, the gift exchange is much more than just an act between friends, but it is really a giving and receiving. And the important thing is that the gift is reciprocated, um, whether it's the same value or, like in this case, something that is of higher value. 
um, doesn't matter, but there needs to be a kind of response. The response does usually not need to be immediate, time can pass. Um, and, and this is what I tried to, um, yeah, in my book I tried to, the more I listen to the Karen speaking about education, I'm not doing research with the Karen since 10 years. And in these 10 years I realized how they actually place a high value on education and as Barbara said, it's a gift crisis. Um, also other Karen often speak of this high value and if they learn they can help their parents. So Sorry, did you say you're now doing it for 10 years or have you been doing I have been, not the same research, but I started to meet the Karen in 2006 when I was a okay. volunteer so for my master's. For, for yes, yes. so this is... And always about young people and education, and in this way, it's, I realized how, how important learning is for them. Yeah. Um, so, and the book is a, the, this book is actually a result of my doctoral thesis, which I wrote here at Queen Elizabeth House, the Institute of International Development, Department of International Development, and postdoctoral work, follow-up work. And I came to think that actually education is like a gift, like a non-material gift. It's different than gift exchange in, in, in the theories and studies so far described. It's much more, uh, but it is also a gift. Education is something, at least um, also in the current imaginary, in the allegiance that, that can be given and that needs to be returned. And there is some benefit. Um, usually you cannot um, return education immediately in an instant. When children learn something, it takes often, it can take years, even decades, until they are able to return the fruits of education and help their parents or their, their own children with it. So this, the, the intergenerational dimension comes in here neatly. Um, but the problem really, like with material gift, the problem arises when someone is unable to return the gift. So if children, and this happens unfortunately with children who grow up as refugees in camps, if they, if they learn a lot, but they don't have the opportunities to use the knowledge, if there are no jobs, if there are no opportunities um, to use the skills either in the refugee camp or in the host society or even back in Myanmar, then an awkward situation is created and they start to question the value of education in itself. Um, so my fieldwork in the last... Oops, here we are. Yes. I don't know how it's quite small, but um, you can see Myanmar and Thailand. The red dots are nine refugee camps at the border between Myanmar and Thailand, where in 2000, so perhaps since 1984, Karen started to arrive from Myanmar in Thailand. And the latest statistics of March 2016 say that there are still 104,229 refugees, and of these, the majority are ethnic Karen, 79.5%. Um, and since 2005, um, the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, initiated a resettlement program and invited Karen families, not only Karen, also others, Kareni, Shan, um, to apply and to resettle in so-called third countries. Third country means neither Myanmar, neither Thailand, but for example Australia, many went to the United States, and around 500 Karen arrived in, in the UK. Yeah? Yeah, but that's familiar with the context, what are the reasons why they became refugees? Um, the reasons are that since, um, yeah, for, 
several decades there has been a, a political, um, yeah, a military regime in Burma that was quite um, suppressive um, to ethnic minorities in the border areas um, and made their life difficult. Um, yeah. In a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a bit more than difficult, really. <laughs> yes. Um, um, and officially now, since or not since elections in 2015, November 2015, the situation changed, but it still takes time. Um, you know, even though the regime has now been replaced, uh, the transition, whether or not this will lead to democracy, is a big question mark. And here are the real experts who can say much more about the political changes in the country. But it's not easy. This is important. It's not easy for the refugees in Thailand just to go back to Burma or to Myanmar. Many with whom I spoke, they have no intention to go back because either, um, the bear, either they have very bad memories of what happened or especially the young people, they, never had, they, they have never been in Myanmar. They were born in Thailand in refugee camps and don't even know these places where their parents fled from. Um, especially those who are living here, for example, in the UK, in Sheffield, um, the teenagers, they are 16, 17, most of them have never seen Myanmar. They were born in refugee camps. So I've visited the Karen in internally displaced villages in Myanmar. This was Christmas 2013. Um, I've visited them in refugee camps, also Christmas and before. And then um, I started since January 2015 to meet the community here in the UK. Um, so as I said, there are around 500 Karen, most of whom live in Sheffield, some there's also a community in London. And it's, it's quite easy to meet them because they, they are very, um, their community is quite strong. They have um, festivals, for example, the Karen New Year. Um, they meet regularly in the, most of them are Christians. So they meet at this, um, at the Baptist Church in London or in, at the Methodist Church in Sheffield. And they're very well organized, especially the group in Sheffield. So they have their own regulations for researchers. So one has to appear and present oneself and ask for their permission to do research in the community. And um, yeah, so just, and all this time with the Karen, I heard over often this story of, of a lost book and a gift, back to the gift of education in Karen mythology. The Karen have an idea, or at least in the mythological thinking, there was a book at the beginning that the Karen received from the Godhead. They call this Godhead Swa. Um, our book of gold that Swa gave, our book of silver that he gave. The elders did not obey, lost it, wandered to the foreigner. This is the nutshell of the, of the whole story. The story exists in various versions. In brief, the Karen think that at the beginning of time there were the Karen, the Burmese brother, and um, the, sometimes some versions see the Thai brother, but always also the white brother, the foreigner. And what happened was that God, Swa, this Godhead, gave um, the Karen a certain book, a golden book that contains all the knowledge of the world because the Karen was the eldest brother. But the Karen brother was not interested in reading the book and just continued with rice farming and left the book on the side of the field. So instead of reading, they preferred to continue their rice farming work. And meanwhile, 
according to some versions of the story, the white brother came and just took the book away. Whereas in other stories, um, the Dermits came and ate the book. But um, in, for most Karen, it's actually the white brother, the Englishman, or the, Amer the English, who took the book away, went away with this book that contains the important knowledge and access to literacy. And because of that, the Karen continued to do rice farming and subsistence economy, whereas Western people um, advanced um, in knowledge and technology because they had access to this book. And since this time, the Karen brother waited for the book, the, the precious book, to return. This is all Karen mythological thinking. Now, what happened is that through a strange coincidence in history, the book really seemed to return in the form of the Bible. Um, first, in the 17th century, education came to the Karen through some Catholic missionaries who established diplomatic relations with the court of um, the Kingdom of Bego, and first taught that court and then received permission from the king to teach also the Karen. That was in the 17th century. But in the 19th century came the American Baptist missionaries, um, and they also went straight away to the Karen without, I don't think they established relations with the royal court. They went to, this, to the Karen, and there was one Karen in particular, Kota Biu, who, who was helping in the household of one of the famous missionaries, Adoniram Chatzen, and he saw in this house the Book of Common Prayer. And he, the Karen who helped in the house, thought that this is the book, the lost book. He became a Christian and many other Karen too, because they thought that this prayer book is the lost book that now the white brother brings back. Um, the missionaries didn't, what, I did not find any source that says that this um, misunderstanding or interpretation was corrected. Instead, the um, Baptist missionaries actually write in their writings. You can see that they know that the Karen um, saw a parallel between their lost book and became enthusiastic to read the Bible because they thought it's the lost book. But they don't mention, they say actually that this is very favorable and helpful for the mission instead of saying we need to um, clarify this. So many Karen became Christians initially through this, but of course, um, this is not the only reason, I think, why Karen became Christians, but um, it was at the beginning a major reason. And, um, and quite soon, um, uh, the American Baptists also opened many schools, um, especially there was also one um, college, the Judson, the Judson College in, um, in Rangoon, which became known um, as the Karen College because so many Karen um, went to this college at the turn of the century. And this was also the moment where Karen nationalism actually developed at this modern, uh, in modern schools, especially at university level. I think uh, Benedict Anderson also describes in his book Imagine Communities the importance of education, especially higher education for uh, minorities to, um, yeah, to create this sense of um, national belonging and of us being a nation. And that happened to the Karen as well. Karen education um, flourished until actually 1962 when the military coup in Burma um, nationalized all schools. 
public schools like um, the Methodist English School where Do Aung San Suu Kyi went and others, um, this school was transformed into a state school and Burmese became the medium of instructions all over the country including the ethnic minority areas. So this is also a reason why the Karen are very disadvantaged to many other ethnic groups because they never had, they don't have access to schooling in their own mother tongue. Um, yeah. So this, so although there were schools um, in the current state of Myanmar, of Burma, learning was frequently interrupted because of the conflict and children who, do, who cannot learn in the mother tongue don't absorb and um, had difficulties learning. There were no second, or almost no secondary schools. So what happened in the last years, um, uh, quite an interesting phenomenon. Few humanitarian organizations say that um, a major reason for young Karen to come to Thailand to refugee camps was actually that they were in search of education. Not so much because, well, how should I? Usually, if you come to a refugee camp, you need to have very good causes. You need to say that your village was burned, um, you suffered from this and that. But a sober reality is that um, thousands of young people came to these camps, especially in the early and mid teens, because they wanted to, they knew that there are schools available in the camps, especially secondary education, which was not available in the um, current state of Myanmar. And of course, schooling not being available is also a, an effect of the conflict. So, um, of course, these young people were affected by the conflict, but it was this particular idea that they wanted to study. And um, one volunteer teacher who worked for years there, um, she's Maltese, but um, lives in Britain, she says, the students used to travel on their own, particularly for education. Many of the young were unaccompanied. They didn't have parents to turn to. They would come at a very, at a very age starting from 11 or 12, especially in, in the mid-teens. They came in search for education. So although there were some families in the camp, the predominant structure were youth of in search of education. There, I've, I've visited myself the refugee camps. There were whole border, border, boarding houses for um, young people who arrived. Um, and of course, this is, this is related to the conflict in Burma because they had to come because education was not available for them elsewhere. But um, it also caused a strange phenomenon of, phenomenon of these young people studying in the camps, being unaccompanied and developing aspirations to use the education but not being able to do so. Because there is a whole generation that received at least, um, went up until secondary school in the camps. Their certificates are not, um, recognized beyond the camps. So they have education, but um, almost no way to put it into practice. Neither in the camps, where a few of them become teachers, but um, the others, um, not everyone finds work in these camps, nor outside the camps, because um, the Karen people, as any other refugee from Burma, is treated not very well in Thailand, or they have often very um, very um, low qualified jobs in factories or at, at farms. It's difficult, some, very few of them um, really access um, higher education through scholarships. It's not impossible, but it, there is a lot of competition. Um, going back to Burma is also not an option for many, um, although some do it. So 
this is a moment where and one someone also compared the the aid that humanitarian um, that the humanitarians give the education they provided again as the foreign brother the white brother bringing knowledge back to the Karen um, but um it's awkward when you cannot do anything with this education and um yeah so I worked with um some it's quite small um I work with Karen young people, um, young adults, and I ask them to draw their life courses for me. Um, and in their life courses, it becomes quite clear. That's not here. This one, he says, he wants to become the president of um, Karen State. So he wants to. He was 24. He was enrolled in a post-secondary education program outside the refugee camps, and he. There would be much to say about the drawing because he describes his village, how the family had to flee, the village was attacked, how he lost two of his siblings and then came to school, to Thailand, to the refugee camps and how he aspires to go to university and to return to Burma to become the current president and to marry and um, give back to his country. Um, this young man, the drawing was made in 2013, and now I know that he's in, he's actually in, in, in Yangon doing an internship. Um, but just to say that, or another girl, she also describes how she grew up, lost her father, um, went to school in the Thai refugee camp, the Thai flag, the Thai refugee camp. She also wants to go to university to become a nurse. Um, whether or not this is possible depends on many issues, especially on social relationships. Um, no one of those who, who, who accesses higher education outside the refugee camp does so by themselves. They always have help, either of, um, of different kinds of sponsors. Yeah, social relationships, are, social networks are very important. In this case, these young people participated in an education program um, run by the Jesuits. Perhaps you know Jesuit Refugee Service. It's a, it's a charity in the Catholic Church and they also have programs for young people who want to study outside of camps. Um, others, um, I think many, there are many um, other religious groups who also have both secondary education but also um, secular institutions. Um, there are all kinds of both secondary education opportunities and it's important for young people to have a sponsor. Without a sponsor, um, often their own parents, they are poor. If to the parents, um, young people's aspirations are linked to their parents' hopes. In essays they shared with me how, how much um, their parents place value on education but even if the parents show you that education is a value, you still need money to um, access the school, buy um, school stationery and everything. And for this, um, yeah, the young people depend on sponsors. They don't have state support like we have here, um, but it's often through um, charity and sponsorship. Um, and for some, it's even possible to go to university in this way. I think the open. Um, open society has also scholarships, yes. this kind of. So there are ways, but um, there are many social constraints. And one one important constraint is that um, often, yeah, 
these young people, they did not have a smooth education, like um, we have here that we go from one class to another, we start at age six and uh, move on smoothly, but because of the conflict in Burma, many had to interrupt the learning, as this one says here. Um, sometimes I was not free to study because the Burmese attacked my village, therefore we had to move to the jungle because we, if we did not move to the jungle, they would have killed us. So problems with learning, um, and in, in Burma, but also in Thailand, where there is a lot of fear, even though they, they can access post-secondary education, they are not really free in their mind to study because this constant fear of being, um, dis being discovered as a non-citizen, not being able to speak Thai, it's not very conducive for learning. Um, those who resettled to the UK um, experienced a major cultural shock with the British school system. Um, First of all, it was very difficult for um, the young people who arrived in Sheffield to integrate because those who were, for example, 12 years old were put into grade um, 6, is, is it I think here, but um, they might only have attended um, a few years of primary school um, back in, in the refugee camp. Um, but the British system asks them to, go in this, to fit into the age-graded system. So they are actually very smart. Um, I had a group interview with a group of, um, I think, five, yeah, five um, young people, and they told me how, how they actually caught up quite fast. They studied and applied themselves, and after a while really fitted, went along with this age credit system, but um, it was very difficult for them. Um, and another, another issue is, for example, this asking questions. They were not trained in, neither in, in, in Myanmar nor in Thailand are students encouraged to ask questions. It's more road learning, the teacher says something, the student repeats. And this research participant says um, how hard it was for him to adapt to the new society during class um, in here. So if you say, is there any question? And a lot of young people raise their hand and like to ask a question, but not in our country. Even now, if you say, is there any question? I cannot think in any question. What question might there be to ask? And then he reflects more and says it was because since we were young, we have been oppressed. So it is not easy to come up with a question like that. Um, they are very good in reflecting on their own situation, on their own inability to ask critical questions. This was actually for me surprising with the young people in Sheffield that even though, yeah, even though they know that they have these critical problems to raise questions, they, they can describe and understand the reasons why this is so. Um, and also the student-teacher relationships, they were shocked when they arrived in the UK, how the teacher is treated badly in, in classrooms. One says, a girl, the first school day, the students, they don't respect the teacher like in our country. They were throwing paper and shouting. And I was so scared and I cried because I cannot speak the language and it was my first lesson, my first class, and I was so scared. She was so scared when she saw how this unrest in, in British schools, oh, how the teachers are often really treated badly by the students. And peer relationships, a shock. The British teenagers who go to clubs and pubs, the current students said it was very difficult for them to make friendships with their classmates because the classmates always wanted them to come to the pub and the club, but um, they did not want to go because they don't want to have issues with their own parents at home. The parents said, um, um, no, is there not, 
the parents wondered if we cannot make friends in another way than pub and club. And it was very hard for them to communicate between these generations and cultures. So um, again, it's not easy. Um, I'm giving these examples to show the, the, this political and how important the political and the context is of education. That um, education is never just, it does not purely exist a textbook, but um, whether or not what you can receive and how much you can pass on really depends on um, the context in which you live in. And the Karen in Sheffield are, are doing very well. Um, they also have a responsibility, perhaps, <coughs> I don't know. Not only the Karen in Sheffield, but in general the Karen diaspora all around the world, they are very good in um, keeping on with their traditions and trying to pass on the um, cultural knowledge um, to the younger generation, especially the children who are already growing up in other countries than Thailand or Myanmar. The whole generation nowadays, um, most of them have British citizenship, likewise the communities in the US or in Australia, but they are very good actually in, um, in teaching the current language. They have um, regular um, English language camps and also in teaching these traditional dances and there are really good networks, transnational networks between the Karen in Myanmar, Thailand and the UK, for example, with weaving and producing clothes. So the Karen women in Myanmar, they, they make the clothes, they produce the fabric and send it via Thailand to the UK and the women here make new dresses and so there are still links and um, that would actually be worth exploring more. At the same time, the young people here use the education effectively, different than the Karen refugees in Thailand, the Karen here in the UK really have the freedom to use and the ability, they are encouraged to use the education to support communities in Myanmar or in Thailand. So what happens often through the church, they make charity events or even organize um, study trips to Myanmar to support particular schools in the current state. So this is, in, this is a good example of how education enables them to give something back. Whereas in Thailand, it's quite a locked up situation. Um, a few conclusions. Yeah, concluding remarks, um, I tried to show that um, conceptualizing the gift of education or education as a gift is very helpful to understand power relations between different generations of Karens in different times and places. In my book I also look at the Karen who are not from Burma but from Thailand, so the book is more complex. Um, and these structural constraints, as I have mentioned, the refugee camp or being a minority in Thai society or in British society, the impact on education as a gift, especially in these um, yeah, situations. Another issue is, for example, that um, <coughs> certain knowledge gets lost, for example, rice farming. Um, the younger generation who grew up in refugee camps, they never learned how to grow rice, and rice farming is actually traditionally for the Karen in, still in Burma, and also for the Karen, for the Karen in Thailand, a traditional um, way of um, being a human person. Even if you do another job, you know how to do the rice farming. Even if you end up being a teacher, you know how to participate in rice farming. But those who grew up in refugee camps don't know it because it was not allowed to grow rice. 
those who come to the UK or to other countries are also, well, in the US there are some farming projects to help the Karen to continue with farming, but, but not here necessarily, I've not heard of it. So a certain type of knowledge gets lost. Um, if there is an abundance, a, a huge offer of education, like in the refugee camps and young people are even attracted to come, this is good, but the problem is when they cannot use this education um, afterwards. Um, yeah, And UK context is really very good. Um, I talked again with Barbara Ban, um, and she said the Karen who went to the US have a completely different experience. Those who are in the UK study, have access to higher education, most of them go to some kind of college or even to university and, you know, they learn to they become nurses or some study biochemistry, whereas those in the US, many work in meat factories because there is a different, um, they don't have access to, um, to scholarships, there is a different welfare system and completely different experience of the two communities and it would be worth to compare current experiences, the diaspora generally, also Australia, the different countries where they went to see how different policies um, uh, affect this whole generation who went together in 2005 from the camps across the world. Um, and yeah, thank you. Um, if you have questions.